Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 2. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last time, we talked about the two broad schools of thought in the early church concerning the person of Christ. And these are typically called the Alexandrian school, because it was centered in Alexandria, Egypt, and then the Antiochian school of Christology, centered in Antioch. But I suggested that these geographical names are probably not as elucidating as the descriptions monophysite versus diophysite Christology. That is to say, uh, one nature versus two nature Christology. The proponents of a monophysite or one nature Christology held that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, possessed a single divine human nature. Some of them understood the incarnation to be a matter of the Logos's clothing himself with flesh, assuming a human body as his own. By contrast, the proponents of a two-nature Christology emphasized that in the incarnation, the Logos took on not just a human body, but a complete human nature, and therefore both a rational soul and a human body. On this view, the Logos was joined at conception with the man, uh, the human being, that was born by Mary, um, Jesus' mother. The incarnation on this view thus involved the union of a complete human being and a complete divine being. So those are the two um, contesting schools of Christology in the early church, the monophysite and the diophysite view. Let's look more specifically at the monophysite Christology. One of the most creative of the Alexandrian thinkers, uh, whose thought was to be very influential in the course of the Christological controversies, was Apollinarius. Apollinarius was a bishop in Laodicea uh, who flourished in the mid-fourth century. He died in 390. Apollinarius argued that it's impossible for Christ to have both a complete human nature and a complete divine nature, because that would simply amount to God indwelling a human being, and that falls short of having a true incarnation. He said that if in addition to the divine mind of the Logos, there was also a human mind of Jesus, then the Logos did not really achieve a full incarnation. Uh, the Logos simply indwelt the man, Jesus of Nazareth. So on Apollinarius's ingenious solution to this problem of getting a real genuine incarnation, um, 
he appealed to his anthropology. Now, Apollinarius had a tripartite apology. That is to say, there are three parts that go to make up human being. Uh, the outermost part would be the human body, or soma. In addition to the body, or the soma, however, there is also the animal soul, or psuche. Now, this being merely an animal soul, it's like the soul that other animals have. It's simply an animating principle that makes the body alive rather than a corpse. In human beings, there's a third part, which is the human mind, or the noose. So, on Apollinaris' anthropology, human beings are made up of a body, a soma, an animal soul, psuche, and a rational soul or mind, the noose. And on his doctrine of the incarnation, the divine logos took the place of the human noose or mind. Thus, in Jesus, there was not a human mind. Rather, it was a divine mind. It was the mind of the Logos. And so, as a result, on Apollinarius' Christology, you can see that the Logos was constitutionally united with human being. Uh, the man, or the person, rather, Jesus of Nazareth, was a divine person with a human body and uh, an ordinary human uh, animal soul. So in Christ there exists a single nature which has divine part, the logos, and then purely ordinary human parts, the soma and psuche. So it is a single nature which has a part that is coessential with God, the Logos, and parts which are coessential with us, namely the, the flesh and the animal spirit. The Logos, by being constitutionally joined with uh, humanity in this way, came to experience the world through his flesh. And he was able to act in the world by using the flesh, his body, as an instrument. So the body for the incarnate Logos was both a means of um, experiencing the world and also a means of acting in the world. Now since there is only a single intellect or mind in Christ, which just is the Logos, that means that Christ was without sinful desires and indeed incapable of sinning, because it's impossible that the Logos could sin. On Apollinarius's anthropology, the seat uh, or locus of the sinful instincts in human beings is the noose. And Jesus didn't have a human mind or noose. Instead, it was the logos. And therefore, he was utterly without sin and indeed incapable of sinning because the second person of the Trinity could not sin. Now, in advocating this understanding of the Incarnation, Apollinarius stood in the tradition of the great Alexandrian theologians. For example, the uh, 
great Athanasius, one of the uh, champions uh, of Nicene Orthodoxy at the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius always spoke of the Logos's taking on flesh. He never refers to the human soul of Jesus. So, for example, Athanasius affirms in his orations against the Arians, and I quote, in nature the word himself, the logos, is impassable. The, the divine nature cannot suffer. The logos in his own nature is impassable. And yet, he says, because of that flesh which he put on, these things are ascribed to him since they belong to the flesh and the body itself belongs to the Savior. So the Logos could experience suffering, exhaustion, um, hunger and thirst and so forth through the flesh which he take on, took on, even though in his own nature he is incapable of suffering. So Apollinarius typically thinks of the Incarnation in terms of the Logos's taking on flesh. Apollinarianism um, gave us a genuine incarnation, not simply an indwelling of God in a human being, but a constitutional union of divinity and humanity. And it's no more, I think, intrinsically implausible than the union of the human soul and the human body, because on this view the Logos just takes the place of the human soul. So if anthropological dualism, that is to say, if, is plausible, if we think of human beings as a union of soul and body, then it doesn't seem any more difficult to think of a union of the Logos and humanity on that model. The model that Apollinarius offered uh, ensures the unity of Christ's person. There is only one person who Christ is, namely he is the Logos, clothed with flesh, and it also explains how the Logos could participate in human suffering through his taking on of a human body. Now, before I say anything about the reaction among the Church Fathers to Apollinarianism, let me ask if there are any comprehension-type questions about Apollinarius's view. Check, check, check. Any questions uh, at all about what Apollinarius held? Yes, over here. Is, is the Logos then uh, subject to temptation? That's a really good question. He needs to be, it seems, subject to temptation because even though he was incapable of sin, nevertheless he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? And I think that's an open question on Apollinarius's view. I'll return to it later. If we think of the Incarnation as Superman disguised as Clark Kent, then those temptations would be, they would bounce off of him like bullets bounce off of Superman. There, there is no real lure, no real temptation. And that doesn't seem right. It seems like we want to say that Jesus really was tempted, just as we are, but he resisted those temptations. And that's going to require some finessing. So um, hold on to that question. I, I think on Apollinarianism, it is difficult to see how the Logos 
could be really tempted uh, if he is there in the flesh in the place of a human mind. So that, that's a really good question that, that you're raising. We'll need to talk about that more. The question reveals that you understand the model. Yes, Bob. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says that he was tempted in every way just as we are. Well, yes. That adds to it. Right. He was tempted in every way as we are. And I think that we would want to say he didn't just blow these temptations away like smoke, but that he felt their allure. And so that's going to be one of the constraints on a, an acceptable model for the incarnation. Yes, I think Bruce had a comment here. But yet James says God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man. So I, I think, you know, yeah. for me it's not a problem being a trichotomist. But okay. <laughs> but the other, the other aspect is, you know, uh, the other uh, side of that is discuss temptation either as a noun or a verb, and as whether you are the, the agent or the object, and as the object, whether you are affected. Yeah, okay, these, so are, these, are, these are really good questions. I mean, Bruce now presents the other side. James says, God cannot be tempted with evil. And since the Logos is God, how could he be tempted? Except in the sense, as I say, and I like the way you distinguish the object and the agent, that Satan was the agent of temptation. He came against Christ, the Logos, with these promises of world dominion and uh, sustenance in the wilderness. He came against him with these temptations. But the question that's being raised here is, did he really, f did Jesus really feel those temptations? Or were they just like bullets bouncing off Superman? And, and you've got you've scriptures that seem to be on both sides, as we've seen. So we'll, we'll have to talk about that some more. I don't think Apollinarianism itself decides the answer to that for us. Okay. Some other comment. Yes, Jonathan? Um, I wanted to know, what did you think of, how does this view resonate with perfect being theology? Because God as a maximally great being, he can sin, not even possibly sin in any possible world. The very fact that he's tempted to sin makes me All right, what Jonathan is raising is a question about a much later medieval uh, thinker's conception of God, St. Anselm, who flourished during the 11th century. So this is some seven centuries later. You'll remember we encountered St. Anselm when we talked about the ontological argument for the existence of God. Anselm defined God as the greatest conceivable being, or the most perfect being, as Jonathan says. And so the question would be, can you unite Anselm's concept of God with an Apollinarian Christology? And it seems to me that, yes, you could, that, that um, Apollinarius would maintain with Anselm that God is the greatest conceivable being, and that therefore the Logos is impassable, cannot suffer, cannot be affected, uh, and that he um, um, is incapable of sin, so that even if he was tempted by the devil, there's no possibility he could have given in. There's no possible world, as Jonathan says, in which Christ succumbed to Satan and sinned, because God cannot sin. So the question will be, given that view of divinity, what remains of the temptations of Jesus? Are they just showpieces? 
uh, but not really a kind of existential allure on Jesus' part. And if that's the case, how can he sympathize with us as our high priest, as Bob says, if, if these temptations have no effect on him? Now remember, Apollinarius wants to say that even though the Logos is impassable in the divine nature, in the flesh he is passable. He can experience hunger and thirst and fatigue and pain. And so we're in the flesh. And so maybe that would provide room for Apollinarius to say that he felt the force and allure of the temptations in his human nature, but not in his divine nature. We'll talk about it some more later on. Okay, yes. Uh, is that Taiwan? Okay, you've changed your hair, Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't recognize you at first. Go okay. ahead. Um, Christ is second Adam. So um, in physical, psychological, and spiritual, they are all of the same, except that um, the will um, w in Adam, the first Adam, was in naivete toward temptation. But in second Adam, there is a, a clear alignment, uh, as Hebrew 10.7 says, I have come to do your will. Yeah. And that kind of... Um, all elements are the same except the, the prime minister of the body kingdom, that will, is redirected. And so priority is different, and, and that is what he wants us to follow into. Yeah. Taiwan is making a very subtle distinction. She's pointing out that in Adam, Adam did not have a will that perfectly did the moral good. Rather, as she put it, it was innocent or na naive. It was not a guilty will, but that didn't mean it was a perfect will, as Christ's was. So while we want to say Adam was sinless, we don't mean that he was morally perfect in the way that Christ is. He was naive, morally speaking. He was innocent until he fell into sin. Whereas Christ, as the Logos, would not simply be naive. He would be morally perfect. He's the greatest conceivable being who cannot but do the good. Now, the, um, there's an even more radical difference, though, Taiwan, and that is that Adam, after the fall, had a corrupted will. He had a will which was no longer capable of doing the good, um, but was a will that was in bondage to sin. Whereas Christ's will, um, even his human will, was not in bondage to sin. Christ did not have a, a fallen sinful nature. His humanity was more like Adam's prior to the fall. But insofar as he was the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, you're quite right in saying he had a, a will that was morally perfect. Okay, some other comment or question. When we are restored in the second coming, and our bodies will be restored, we'll, and it says we will be like Christ. Yes. Are we going to be like Adam, go back to Adam, capable of being, being not a morally, not it being perfect, but not perfect the way Christ is? Yes, I would say that we don't need to retrogress all the way back to a state of innocence, but certainly we would now have wills that are capable of doing the good and are no longer in bondage to sin. That doesn't mean we're perfect. I would imagine in heaven that moral growth 
is potentially infinite. Uh, okay, but we, we will never become as good as God. We will we never be. We will never have. Um, we, we will be able to sin or not sin. Wow. Capable of okay, sinning. That, that's a. That's, that's, that's my a, question. Okay, that's raising a really deep theological question, which we can't decide here. What we know is that the blessed in heaven will not sin. There is no danger that someone in heaven will sin and fall away and be cast out. But does that imply that they cannot sin or simply that they are so restored and renewed and enraptured by the love of Christ that they simply will not sin even though they still have free will? I think that's an open question that we don't need to decide it now. A, it appears that if we could not sin, that we'd be a bunch of little gods running around. <sighs> well, and except insofar, it doesn't mean that we would be perfect. Um, I, I could see where God might take away the freedom to sin in heaven so that um, human beings would not even have the ability to sin anymore. But I'm not going to defend that position here. It does seem to me, though, to be an open question, at least. Let's take Kevin and then Jim. I've heard some Bible teachers teach that the sin nature is passed down from the Father's lineage, which is why you know, Jesus was uh, incarnate, why, why he had a, a physical mother, but not a physical father. Have you ever heard that? And if so, what do I you think? I have never heard that. That is, I think that's absolutely bizarre to think that males propagate the sin nature. In fact, you know, the funny thing, the, the women here, <laughs> think maybe that's a good doctrine. Um, you know, it's so funny because the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church was exactly in the opposite direction. That in order to avoid Jesus inheriting original sin from Mary, his mother, he not only had to be virgin born, but Mary herself had to be immaculately conceived. The immaculate conception is not Jesus' conception. His conception was virginal. The immaculate conception is the Catholic doctrine very late developing in church history that Mary was conceived without original sin. And I think insofar as the Catholics recognize that original sin can be passed on by any human person regardless of his or her sex, they're right in saying that Mary would have naturally passed on original sin to Jesus, um, even if he were um, virginally conceived. So. I, whether you want to deal with that by immaculate conception, that's neither here nor there. But I, I think that they're quite right in saying that the sex of the parent wouldn't have any impact upon whether or not you're, virgin, or you're uh, conceived without original sin. Let's see. We, we're going to have Jim here. Yes. Back to the discussion of uh, if we can sin in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't it true that God will not allow any evil into heaven? There'll be no more tears. Right. No more. So if there's no evil in heaven, there's no stimulation to sin in heaven. Um, right. There wouldn't be any stimulation to sin in heaven, Jim says, because there is no evil present there. 
Yes, but think of the angels who we believe fell uh, originally, the primordial fall of the angels. There wasn't any sort of evil there, I think, that would tempt the mm -hmm. angels to fall. It was just a sort of pride, perhaps, that led to the angelic fall. So one might imagine someone in heaven with the ability to value some lesser finite good instead of God himself, and that would be sin. And that won't happen. Jim is right, that won't happen. But the question is, could it happen? In a sense, Jim's position that you were laying out there would be, it could happen that someone would sin. They have free will to sin, but they never will because there wouldn't be any motivation to sin, no provocation. And therefore, even though they have freedom of the will to sin, there's no worries because there would be no provocation, no motivation. And as I say, I'm worried about the angelic fall there that one didn't seem to have any kind of provocation there either. But Could that be considered a special dispensation? You could say that that was just a special case and wouldn't be like the blessed in heaven. But yeah, this is, this is an open question. Well, let me say a few words before we close about the reception of Apollinarianism. Despite its advantages, Apollinarianism was condemned in the year 377 by a synod in Rome. And two deficiencies of Apollinarian Christology seemed especially serious to the Church Fathers. First, a body without a mind is a truncation of human nature. A body without a mind is not a true human nature. By merely clothing himself in flesh, the Logos did not truly become a man. For essential to humanity, to human nature, is a rational soul as well as a human body, and Christ did not have a human soul. He was like us only with respect to his flesh. And that is a mere animal nature. So the church father, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, accused Apollinarius of saying that the Logos, uh, or that the incarnation, was a matter of God's becoming an animal. That's all it really amounted to. The incarnation of the Logos was God's not becoming a man, but becoming an animal. And therefore, Apollinarianism is unacceptable because it denies the true humanity of Christ. Second problem, if Christ lacked a human mind, then he did not truly redeem the human mind. If he lacked a human mind, then he did not truly redeem the human mind. And this is rooted in the fundamental principle which underlay the entire incarnation, and that is the principle quad non est assumptum, that which is not uh, assumed, non est sanatum, is not saved. Quad non est assumptum, non est sanatum, what is not assumed is not saved. That is to say, if the Logos did not assume a human nature, then he did not save human nature. And he didn't, on this view, assume a human nature. He just assumed an animal 
nature, and therefore human nature is not saved. And therefore, um, the Apollinarian Christology it was charged would undermine the Christian doctrine of salvation. So those are the two principal criticisms of Apollinarianism. Are there any questions about those deficits that church fathers saw in Apollinarius's doctrine? Yes, James. I just want to say something real quick about some, somebody had mentioned that uh, that sin is passed through the male. Yes. Um, Karl Barth, I believe, came up with that, and um, so I believe that's roughly a um, hundred years old or something like that. But I've, I have actually seen that. Really? So yeah, it. I don't. I don't know what to say else otherwise. But now my question is, um, when we're talking about what is not assumed cannot be saved. Yes. Forgive me for doing this, but when it comes to a, the, the matter of Christ's will, I, I believe you believe he has one will, whereas I believe that um, it, it is orthodox to say that he had actually two wills. Yes. So my question there would be, if, if he does not have a, not just two natures, but two wills, then, then if, if there's not the will, then how... How can he redeem our will? How can he redeem it if he doesn't possess it? James is jumping way ahead. Uh, and uh, so we, we'll come back to that. But he's pinpointed a problem that the church fathers would have agreed with. They would have been totally in agreement with you, James, that on this view, there was just a single will in Christ, the will of the Logos. There was no human will because there was no human mind. And therefore, how could the human will be redeemed? It wasn't assumed by Christ. So they would agree with your critique. Indeed, your critique just is a kind of uh, reverberation of the second point that I mentioned. The salvation is merely a restoration of God's creation. So Christ comes to save us just to restore us back to what before the fall. So the fall is due to a uh, rebellion of the will. And, and talking about sin passing down male, because a lot of times male carry that willpower because female have to submit to that. And which caused the emotional depravity Depravity, which it just kind of um, perpetuate uh, with both emotional and and will, um, you know. So I I think um, Christ is a you can say a just like Adam, except his will is reconciled with God in perfection, where he will bring us into that reconciliated reconciliated reconciliation which means that when Jesus comes he said the kingdom of God is at hand and we say your kingdom come the kingdom is here on earth in relationship when our relationship is reconnected with God as Christ is then we are in heaven and and so our will will be like Christ, who cannot be tempted because it's Christ lived in us. All right. Um, <laughs> the only, my, my main concern would be when you said something about Christ has a will that is reconciled to God. 
And it's I, I would one. Say, it's one. I, I mean, okay, it's yeah, one. It's he helped us. Because it was he, never I mean, fallen. he helped us to reconcile. Yeah, so on, on Orthodox Christology, Christ had a divine will, which is the will of the Logos, which is impeccable. That is to say, it could not sin. Then he had a human will, um, which uh, never falls. He never sins with the human will. Um, but in which that human will agrees with and follows the divine will. And I, I do think that in heaven you would be right in saying that our wills would be like Christ's human will in that we would be restored and put back into a, a position where our wills can do God's righteous will and are not bound by sin anymore. All right, well, this was a good discussion today. What we'll do next time is look at the Antiochian school of Christology, uh, which insisted against Apollinarius that in the Incarnation, Christ had two complete natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And we'll see the problems that this view led to for proponents of the uh, the Antiochian school. So let's conclude with a word of prayer, shall we? And now may the Lord of Christmas fill your hearts with uh, reminiscences of his great incarnation and ultimate sacrifice for our sins that we might come to know God, eternal life and freedom from sin. Christ our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.